0: Welcome to the HVMN Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Wu. mTOR, mechanistic target of rapamycin. What is this? We reference mTOR frequently on our podcast, particularly when we discuss fasting or keto and their potential for extending health and lifespan. It's a pathway that helps control cell growth. To make it dead simple, let me put it this way. When you have high mTOR activation, you're promoting growth in the body. And when you have low mTOR activation, you're promoting repair and maintenance. mTOR is sensitive to the nutrients we consume, particularly protein and carbohydrate. So by controlling our diet, we can control mTOR. This is an exciting area because a lot of researchers think that mTOR plays a role for longevity. Keto and fasting are ways to target mTOR. So that's why keto and fasting has been a very interesting intervention from a scientific perspective. Researchers are even exploring drugs like rapamycin, a drug traditionally prescribed to organ transplant recipients, for the off-label use case as an anti-aging drug. Dr. Keith Barr, a professor of physiology at the UC Davis Medical School, is an expert on mTOR and muscle development and health. I first met Professor Barr at a conference hosted by the military, and he gave a fascinating talk about his research that I'm excited to unpack with you all today. This is a valuable conversation for anyone interested in mTOR and strategies to control it, and why non-tissue-specific approaches like rapamycin might have some problems and challenges. We also talk collagen and how to best use it for maximal benefit. I'm really excited for you all to hear from Professor Barr. Professor Keith Barr, welcome to the HVM headquarters. Thank you for coming by.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. It's a nice facility. Yeah,
0: thank you. I mean, you had to trek into some rain. It's raining pretty badly outside in San Francisco. So thank you for making the trip. So to provide context for our listeners, we had first met at a human performance-related summit back a few months ago, and you gave an interesting talk around some of the work you're doing around human performance, increasing performance, increasing resilience, and obviously all that work that you do at UC Davis relates to a lot of what we're interested in, both from a company, but also as a community here in our podcast space. So I think there's a lot of ways we can start and highlight topics. I know you've done work with mTOR, ketogenic diet, tendons, PPAR, delta, agonists. But perhaps to start the conversation, ketogenic diet is something that we talk a lot about the program, so it might be a nice entry point into the discussion. Can you describe your work with the ketogenic diet? How did you get first interested in the space? But also maybe just open up the opportunity to talk about how did you even become a physiology researcher and a biochemist and and all of that?
1: So for me, the trip to physiology started in performance. So I was a strength and conditioning coach with the Michigan football team. So I was working with high performance athletes for a long period of time. And, And so the idea there was that we would put all of these different guys on these different training programs that were all fairly similar, They'd all lift a lot of weight, they'd all be working really, really hard, high-intensity training to failure. And then some of them would grow huge and strong and then build muscle like they were just inflating themselves with a pump. And other people would work just as hard, maybe even harder, and you wouldn't see any changes. And I really wanted to understand kind of why or how the muscle grew in response to these trainings. And so that was my PhD. And so I had gone away, I had originally gone to Berkeley and then came back to the University of Illinois, the medical center there. I did my PhD and was lucky enough to discover kind of this central regulator of growth was activated by exercise. So when you did resistance exercise, you turned on mTOR complex one. And if you turn on mTOR complex one more, you would get more muscle growth than if you turn it on less. And so that was really the foray into starting to understand kind of how you could target one single molecule with all of these other things that you're doing. And then the neat thing comes when you've identified a molecule that's kind of at the base of kind of affecting what you want to do. And now what you can do is you can say, well, how can I affect that using diet or how can I affect that using other things? So our interest then became, okay, can we manipulate this with diet? And sure enough, the leucine-rich protein, what leucine does is it activates mTOR complex 1. So it makes sense that when you do exercise with leucine-rich protein, you get a bigger muscle than if you didn't have the leucine protein. And the real crux of that that's really important is when you understand the molecular mechanism of how you turn on mTOR... Leucine does it differently than the exercise. And so when you do the two things together, you actually get an additive effect. So what leucine does is it moves an inhibitor away from the mTOR complex. And what resistance exercise does is it moves a different inhibitor. So what leucine does is it brings mTOR to its activator. And what resistance exercise does is it removes the inhibitor from that activator. So you've got mTOR moved to the right spot now, and the activators, the thing that prevents it from working is gone from the resistance exercise. Those two things working together, you get this huge response, whereas if you only have one, you only get part of the response. And so those types of things really brought this lesson of, look, if you understand what you're trying to do, you can figure out all kinds of different ways to do that. And then some of them are going to add together to produce more. And some of them are going to work in the same way and you're just going to get the same response.
0: Right. It's kind of like almost engineering an outcome that you want, right? You found this mechanism that control, it's like the underlying mechanism that you think is very, very important. How do we manipulate it? One of the most common shorthands we always bring up in conversations is mTOR. Can we break that down for the audience that might not be as
1: familiar with mammalian target of rapamycin? Right. So this is, this really interesting protein complex, and that's the key component of it. So what mTOR is, it's an enzyme, and what it does is it adds phosphates onto other proteins, so it's a protein kinase. And so it's the core of a lot of signaling pathways. And mTOR exists in two different complexes. And mTOR complex one is one that's important for protein synthesis and protein breakdown, and what it does is it interacts with a couple of other proteins, which all it does is decide which proteins it can phosphorylate, which ones it can add phosphates to. And so in mTOR complex one, it's together with a protein called Raptor, which allows it to target proteins that are important in growth. In the other complex, mTOR complex two, it's together with a protein that's called Richter. Um, The difference between the Raptor and the Richter is in the name. So rapamycin is where Raptor gets its name. So rapamycin sensitive complex with tor and richter is rapamycin insensitive complex of tor so we say mTOR complex one is the first target of rapamycin if you treat for long enough it blocks both of them and that's some of the problems with rapamycin but so it's basically this protein in mTOR that is in these complexes that allow growth, allow protein synthesis, allow protein degradation so that you can have a dynamic growth situation. Right.
0: So one thing that most people associate with mTOR is a nutrient sensing pathway. So can you unpack, you know, when people hear mTOR, it's usually nutrient sensing. Yep. Can you help glue this concepts together?
1: Yeah. So there's two ways that mTOR is regulated by nutrients. The most obvious way is that when there's leucine-rich protein, leucine actually can bind to a specific protein within the cell. It's in all cells. It's called cestrin. There's a bunch of different flavors of cestrin. And what it does is it actually removes the breaks. And there's a complex process by how this happens. But what happens when you, leucine binds to cestrin is this series of events starts that ends up with mTOR moving to its activator. It's a small protein called REB. And so when the leucine comes into the cell, it binds to cestrin, and that releases all of this inhibition, and mTOR moves to its activator. And so that's how leucine-rich protein will do it. The other way that mTOR is inactivated is actually by metabolic stress. And so specifically, classically, it had been this idea that AMP kinase can inhibit mTOR. And AMP kinase is inhibited is activated when the ATP ratio or the amount of ATP in the cell goes down and the amount of ADP or or AMP goes up. And so in situations where there's low glucose, where there's fasting, you'll get an activation of AMP kinase. And that is thought to inhibit mTOR through one of the upstream inhibitors of mTOR. AMP kinase can phosphorylate this protein and keep it together with that little protein REB and it prevents mTOR from being activated. So it keeps REB inactive. And so mTOR is kind of the hub of nutrient sensing because amino acids can come in and these carbohydrates, fasting fasting can come in to give us a sense as to whether it's a time to grow. So let's turn on mTOR because there's lots of leucine rich protein or whether it's a time where we need to restrict growth because we're in a caloric deficit. That became really a focus when I came back to my undergraduate institute at Michigan and I did a postdoc there. And the guy that I worked with is one of the smartest people in the, literally in the world. And he is, he does everything from engineer little things to diagnose you, whether you have a concussion. He engineered the first type of muscle. He engineered heart muscle, all of these incredible things. He's an engineer, he builds stuff. He's built something that's in every automatic transmission car, so he doesn't really have to work. He does it because he likes to work. <laughs> so this is the kind of person that I was working with at Michigan, and he really instilled in me this idea that, look, they're an engineer, you just build it. A physiologist, you want to understand how everything works. And those two things working together can create something that you wouldn't imagine from the physiology. So the engineer just wants it to work. It doesn't care how it works. The physiology only cares how it works. And now when you put those things together, you get these things that work. You have no idea why. But then if you actually know what you're trying to target in physiology, now the engineering says, well, what if we did this combination of different things? And what if we used this different technique to do it? And it really shifts how you think about it. And so when we started understanding those things. And we look in the literature and mTOR complex, one is central to cancer and it's central to growth. And that's essentially why it's important for muscle growth is because it's important for growth in general. But with growth comes this idea that if I'm the biggest of the species, I'm going to live the less, the least amount of time. And the example I always give my students is if you have two dogs and one's a, one's a little, thing that we don't really call a dog and one's a big dog, that big dog's going to have a shorter lifespan. And really one of the only differences between them is their IGF signaling, which goes through mTOR, which causes your Great Danes to be much taller, much bigger. And it also presumably is contributing to this decrease in lifespan. And so when you look at drugs that increase lifespan, the number one drug that increases lifespan is rapamycin, which blocks mTOR. And so now you've got this really interesting thing. And that's where we had stepped into this ketogenic diet idea because at Davis, we have probably the best lifespan scientist in mice, a guy named John Ramsey, who's a colleague of mine. And then we have Geno and the two of them had been working on dietary or, or nutritional or, or me- metabolic things that increase lifespan. So they had started looking at this molecule called P66 shik, which Italian group had shown could increase lifespan. And what they found is that kind of the genetic profile that you get is an increase in fat oxidation. It's something that's similar to what you would see if you shifted more towards fat utilization. And so the big study that they did and they included me on was what we did is we We kind of clamped the number of calories that they could have because some of the diets are more palatable than others. And then what we did is we manipulated the macronutrients. And so this is, again, John Ramsey does this probably better than anybody in the world, where he can go in and he feeds a control diet. We then gave a low-carbohydrate diet, so it was still high in protein. And, And so in mice, that's important because mice are very good at converting amino acids into sugars. So they were not ketogenic at that point.
0: Right. And then the control diet was like
1: mimic the standard Western diet. Standard Western diet, the ADA type diet. And then what you had as a third group was a lower protein to induce ketogenesis. It was a no carbohydrate. It was about 10% protein. The rest was fatty acids. And so what John found in lifespan studies is that just going low carbohydrate increased lifespan. It was non-significant, but it was about 6%. And then when you did the low carbohydrate ketogenic diet, what you found was the lifespan increased by 13% over the control. And so that was an exciting finding because that's similar to what you would see with something like rapamycin, which is a drug that is really been popularized as this possible thing that could increase lifespan in a variety of different organisms, right. h- humans, dogs, all kinds of things. And so for us that's really interesting because it could very well be that what the ketogenic diet is doing is it's decreasing mTOR complex 1 activity in the body and that's why the diet is working. And so what what our role on that paper was to do is to actually go in and measure that. And so what we did is we started measuring markers of mTOR activity in the liver and other tissues and sure enough mTOR activity was down. And so that was really interesting and exciting. And the way that we're thinking of going forward with that is to say, is the increase in lifespan the result of, of the ability to inhibit baseline mTOR activity? So mTOR is really important for cancer growth. The mice in our study, 8 out of the 10 control mice died of cancer. In, our, in the ketogenic diet, there were only 2 out of 10 of the mice that we went in and, and quantified how they died. Only 2 of them died from cancer. So again especially in the sense of, of the cancer component of it, it had a huge effect.
0: And then one thing that I thought was interesting or perhaps nuanced that not a lot of observers would understand is that mTOR can be tissue-specific. And I believe that you discovered different tissue specificity yeah. on the ketogenic diet.
1: And that's huge for us as well because... Basically, one of the things that's good about exercise is that, as I'd shown in my PhD, if I want to grow my muscle, I need to turn on mTOR in my muscle. But when I do exercise to activate mTOR in my muscle, it's got a metabolic consequence. So I'm using all of this energy in order to do my exercise. And what that does is that depletes energy from other places. So if I look in the liver, mTOR activity is lower in the liver. And that's important because it's going to have consequences for glucose glucose production is going to have other consequences in the body. If I look in the fat mTOR content, mTOR activity is lower. And then if I look in other tissues throughout the body, what I'd see is that by putting that metabolic stress of the exercise, what I've done is I've actually suppressed that mTOR in those areas. And then in the brain, one of the things that we think is happening is that you get an increase in this protein BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And that Downstream of that can be mTOR as well. So some of the protein synthesis necessary for learning and memory is is potentially activated by mTORs involved in that process. And so what you can get is positive effects on the muscle for growth. You can have effects in the liver where regionally you've inhibited mTOR and that's got a positive effect on liver metabolism. But then because you also can stimulate this in the brain, you've also got the potential to activate something that's going to improve learning and memory in the brain. Right. So by doing this regionally, that's really important. And that's why we try and do it with diet, not with a drug like rapamycin. Which
0: hits everything universally.
1: Exactly. And so, we know that when you treat individuals with rapamycin, it increases their lifespan. It also causes insulin resistance. It also causes muscle wasting. It also impairs muscle regeneration because we know there's an absolute necessity for mTOR to fix damaged muscle. So, if we injure a muscle by doing eccentric loading, the only way that that muscle regenerates is if it has proper mTOR activity. Right.
0: I think a lot of the popular discussion with mTOR for longevity seems to be fairly simple, where it's a one-dimensional on or off switch, and we want to be inhibiting as much as possible. It's kind of like the first-level headline that most people, I would say, in the biohacking space or just the general lay interested folk looking to optimize longevity. It's like, okay, minimize mTOR. And I think it is worth like a nuanced discussion around, okay, we want tissue specificity, because I think as referencing to your football days, you want to be gaining lean muscle tissue and you want to be activating mTOR for those Use cases and for different other regions like delivery, you probably want to be minimizing that. So, given that there's this nuance of regional differences, you know, could you expand upon you know, you know, I guess explore the nuance a little bit, of like you know, what regions would we want to be amping up or am- or ramping down mTOR? Yeah, and it sounds like a drug like rapamycin is not tissue specific, so it just hits everything exactly, which is could be reasonable, but maybe not ideal. And it sounds like for diet, this is much more tissue-specific. Right. And I guess the natural question is after that, are there tissue-specific compounds or drugs that one
1: can come up with? So we can start with the basics. So obviously for us, mTOR activity in muscle is going to be paramount because in humans. So all of the rapamycin data is in model organisms because obviously it takes a long time to get that data in humans. But the interesting thing with model organisms is that the food is right there. They don't have much activity. They don't have a bathtub that they have to get in and out of. When you go to humans, the number one correlate with longevity is actually muscle mass. Mm-hmm. It's actually strength. Yep. So so if you have greater muscle mass and strength, you're going to live longer. And so that's really important nuance between the model organisms where everything is kind of there. Their longevity is not determined by their ability to do their activities of daily yeah. living because they don't. Yeah, really I want to interject
0: that you have a hypothesis on why. Lean muscle mass is the highest con- uh, correlate.
1: So it contributes in a number of different ways. And one of them is just the strength to survive. Yeah, There's a second one that we really think is important, which is if you're older and you're strong and you're robust, people always come up to you. Oh, you look great. Yeah. You get all this positive reinforcement. And the only way to actually stay robust is to actually go out and be in an environment where you're out in a social environment. So it's like a social little factor there. There's a huge okay. social component to it. There's a huge functional component. You're not going to fall as much. You're not right. going to have all of those secondary problems. The tertiary thing is that you have this huge muscle mass and all of that muscle mass is going to use it's energy. glucose sink. It's going to be a glucose or it's going to be a fatty acid sink. If you have healthy muscle that maintains mitochondrial function, those mitochondria are actually going to produce things that actually are really essential to inhibit the production of a neurotoxin in the brain. There's a beautiful pathway that's around this amino acid um, degradation product called kylurenin. And kylurenin is really interesting because it circulates in the blood and what happens is it goes up to the brain, it goes across the blood-brain barrier, and then it can be broken down into quinolinic acid and Mm -hmm. quinolinic acid is a neurotoxin. Well, when you exercise and you have a high amount of mitochondrial mass, you produce an enzyme called the chirenin aminotransferase. And what it does is it cuts chirenin into chyrenic acid. And now it's a charged molecule and it can't get across the blood-brain barrier. And so this is supposed to be one of the ways that exercise inhibits depression. Mm. This is supposed to be one of the ways that exercise inhibits the progression of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or other things. We talked earlier about this idea that it produces BDNF, and that's one component of it. But you're also, so you're producing a positive thing, and you're also getting rid of this negative thing. Yeah. And so that's really an important function of muscle, especially muscle that is rich in mitochondria, it's rich in metabolic activity. Right. And so all of those things, so you have this metabolic sink where you can take up fatty acids and you can use them as a fuel. You can take up glucose, use it as a fuel. You can break down things that are going to be neurotoxic. You can do your activities of daily living. Muscle is playing this immense role in in our longevity and our well-being, especially our health span. And so that's really what we think is key. And so when we look at something like rapamycin, which can extend lifespan, but it can cause muscle to slowly decline, your muscle mass and strength to slowly decline, we actually think that, yeah, you're going to be alive, but you're not going to be enjoying life right your health span your health span is going to be be, compromised yeah severely compromised right and I always give the example of my neighbor my neighbor is 102 years old now up until a year and a half two years ago every day she'd go for her walks she would go down to the senior center down a couple blocks away she would do yoga she would do all the strengthening work she's totally fit yeah her brain works beautifully. Everything works beautifully. And that's exactly what you want to be able to do. Relative to her size, she's super strong. She used to complain that the yoga instructor at the senior center made him get it down on the ground to do these things. And the ground was all dirty. But she would have to then get herself up. So she would have to use her musculature to get herself up. Right. And so it kept training her and it kept doing those things all throughout this extensive life. And she's still going at 102 and she's she's out and plugging away. That's exactly what muscle mass does. It gives you this energetic sink, but it gives you the ability to do all these things. And everybody who sees her talks to her and she gets this positive reinforcement. All of those things together make it so that you feel young. You behave much more like a young person. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. I I put you on a little bit of a tangent there, but going back to tissue specificity and why diet or nutrition is more tissue specific and then if that is the case can we develop drug-like compounds or just external molecules to be the better version of
1: rapamycin that's tissue specific yeah so the tissue specificity is really important for this and this is why we think that rapamycin where rapamycin breaks down is that what i want to be able to do is i want to decrease baseline mTOR activity Mm -hmm. But I still want to be able to stimulate it when I need to regenerate my muscle. I still want to be able to stimulate it if I want to grow my muscle. I still want to be able to stimulate it if I have an infection. Because rapamycin was originally developed as a drug for anti-kidney rejection. So when you got a kidney transplant, what rapamycin does is mTOR is absolutely essential for your immune function. So by taking rapamycin, you decrease your immune function. And so when you have a kidney transplant, you're not gonna reject the kidney. And so that's where it developed and that's why it was really a powerful tool. But if you are going through day-to-day life and you can't mount an immune response, Now you're at greater risk of having other complications. If you can't grow your muscle, if you can't regenerate your muscle, now you're at the risk of going into a decline. So if you can't have tissue-specific activation or inhibition and you don't have the dynamic range of the signal, that's where the problem comes in. So what happens as we begin to age, we begin to get a little obese, we begin to develop these things, baseline inflammation goes up. So mTOR activity actually in the muscle, if we look at it over time, it actually rises at baseline. Mm, okay. And what the ketogenic diet does is it keeps the baseline down. So if through age we're getting this slow inflammatory other signals that are causing a baseline increase in mTOR, now when we actually go to do something that stimulates it, like we need to regenerate a muscle, now we don't have the dynamic range anymore. Uh, so the delta is bigger, and that's going to give an actual better response. Like is
0: mTOR uh, fatigue exactly. or something? So,
1: so what happens is the signal is already kind of on, and so it's harder to turn it on, and it's harder to get the increase in activity that we need in order to have all of these functions. Kind like of this story with insulin resistance, where it's you exactly just have higher baseline. Okay. It's exactly the same. So basically what we think is happening is your baseline mTOR activity is going up, and just like insulin resistance when you just don't have the dynamic range to then respond when there's a glucose challenge or when there's an immune challenge or when there's all these other challenges. And so what we think is happening with these diets is that you're decreasing the baseline so that when you have a stimulus, your dynamic range is much higher. I see. And so when you have an infection, if you've been on a diet where it's lowered mTOR activity throughout the body, now your immune system has this huge dynamic range that it can use to generate the immune response. Right. When you go and you exercise, now you've got this huge dynamic range. And so that's where we think that this tissue specificity as to, and it's really more about keeping the baseline low, maintaining the dynamic range. And then by keeping the baseline low, all those other tissues that really shouldn't activate mTOR except in the case when you get a cancer, now those are always low anyways. Yeah. And so you're not getting that response in those tissues, but you still have the dynamic range in the tissues where you need that response. Right, as opposed to
0: rapamycin, which would suppress or blunt any sort of dynamic
1: range. Exactly. I was on the train today with somebody who was telling me about a daughter who um, was born and had to have a heart transplanted a month. Right. And then you you have to be on all these anti-rejection drugs. Right. And so what the result is, is she's very, very small. She doesn't grow normally.
0: That makes sense. And as a result,
1: because all of these drugs are blocking the whole system. Right. So she's not able to grow taller because in it, the way that you grow taller is that you have these signals through growth hormone and IGF-1 that increase collagen synthesis, which push your bone plates apart and you grow taller. Right. And so all of those responses are inhibited. And so for her, that's an extreme example of what happens when you don't have these tissue specific effects. You just don't get the same growth. You don't have the same ability to thrive.
0: Right. So how would we go about engineering tissue specific molecules or interventions? I mean, I think that's like the natural engineering question. Like, okay, we have some understanding of the nuances here. This is probably like in line with your work. How do we play this so we optimize the benefits without the
1: downsides? So as far as drug targeting, it becomes a little bit difficult. Well, what we would do is we would do something that we would do in exercise. And this is something that British Cycling or Sky Cycling now has done for years. And what it is, is you target by using exercise as a targeting device. So if I were to take any supplement right now, sitting here, sitting on the train on the way down here, not really having had any activity, it would go to my liver. It would circulate all around a little bit. If there's no response that's going to increase blood flow to any tissue, so if there's no insulin response, because one of the things that insulin does is it shunts blood to specific tissues yeah. so that you can target nutrients. So if I don't have anything like that, I just take the supplement, I sit here, it's going to get to my liver. It's not really going to go too many other places. Got broken down. And, and it's yeah. going to get broken down and, yeah. and shuttled out. Yeah. Now, if I do an exercise session, and I take it right afterwards, and I've got lots of blood flow going to the muscles that I just worked, what you've basically done is you've taken an envelope that you've put into the mail, and you've put an address on it. So it's the same nutrient, same supplement, but now by using blood flow that I've targeted to the muscles I want to target by using exercise, now everything that I just took in is going to go to the place that I want it to go. Yeah. Okay, and the way that Sky Cycling has done this, and other cycling and... British Cycling and a number of other groups, they want to get rid of the upper body. They want to maintain the legs because that increases power to weight ratio. And so the way that you do that is you go on a very low calorie diet and all of the calories are taken in around your activity. And so we've done this with USA Track and Field as well. Basically, if you're a track athlete, you need to have leg strength, but you're just carrying the upper body. And yeah, it's important for balance, but it doesn't need to be very big for balance. Right. And so what we try and do is, especially with sprinters who've had to, the U.S. doesn't support their Olympic athletes overly well. So they have to go out and get a job modeling. If you're going to be a model, if you have a big upper body, it makes you a better model. (laughs) It makes you more attractive. And so they build these upper bodies that they then have to carry on the track. And so what we do is we give them a very low caloric diet. We have them take all of their calories in around their exercise, and then we give them all calories that are going to be leucine-rich proteins so that it's going to be targeted to the muscle that we want to maintain. And so in that way, you can, you know, I know Sky Cycling, they maintained leg strength, leg size in an individual who had a three to four kilo loss in upper body mass. So you waste the upper body mass because you don't need it. And then you maintain the lower body mass by using the exercise as a way to target the nutrients. It's the same thing that Lance Armstrong did during his cancer rehab. So he was getting chemotherapy. He was taking in calories and he was cycling through this. So as he was cycling, he had been a triathlete. He had been a guy with big upper body, big back, big shoulders. And then as he's cycling with chemotherapy, the chemotherapy... and. The nutrients are all getting targeted to his muscles of his legs, so he maintains those. Yeah. The chemotherapy targeted and, and he lost a huge amount of upper body mass. And it was a lot of muscle mass that he lost. And so that increased his power to weight ratio and gave him this great advantage. So as far as whether you can get in and target a specific drug to have a signal on it, which takes it to the liver, which takes it to the— well, it's easy to get it to the liver, but it takes it to the muscle or it takes it to another area. That's a little bit difficult, but right. we can do that using our activity.
0: Yeah. I think that makes sense. And I think that adds a lot of nuance to something that we've been thinking about and talking about recently on the podcast and in the community is that there's like a few different levers. There's the timing of new, like consumption, the macronutrient ratio of that consumption. I think are the, the two main levers. And I think most people and – the, and then the exercise mm-hmm. or, or the activity that you do. And I think most people will talk about them in silos. Right. Right. And I think that's something that was actually brought up at the conference. You know, the strength and conditioning coach hangs out in the strength and conditioning coach department. The nutritionist is at his department. Like, the skills coach is at his department. They don't talk. Right. And what you're saying here is basically you're combining the exercise with, with the timing of the nutrition, yeah. which
1: targets exactly where you want to target. Yeah, and it's it's not that there's a window where you have to get it in within a certain amount of time. Right. Because the window is quite big and it's quite open. But what you do have to do is you have to get it to where you want it to go. Yeah. I think the best example of this is a study that Lou Van Loon's been doing in Holland and Belgium. So he's a colleague of mine who who studies protein turnover, and he's one of the best in the world at measuring protein turnover in muscle. He's done it in brain. He's done it in all kinds of tissues. And what he did is he took people who had been coming to the hospital in a coma, And what he does is he just electrically stimulates, lightly electrically stimulates one leg. And he can maintain the mass in that leg while the other leg atrophies completely. So it's not a ton of activity. He's just stimulating it. He's just giving it enough of a stimulus so that it's contractile, so that you get a little bit more blood flow, that you can get some of these signals that we still don't really understand. But just by doing that, now that leg can stay at the same size while the rest of the body's going away because they're in a coma.
0: Which is, like, I guess, a good hope for, you know, folks that have more of a
1: sedentary lifestyle that you still need a little bit. Yeah, it really <laughs> is just a little bit. And and all that your exercise really does is it helps, as this is what Luke always says, is it's it's just like what he, his mom used to say, is that you go and you exercise because you are what you eat. And when you exercise, you actually become more of what you eat. So mm-hmm. that means that you incorporate more of the things that you ate into you as a person. And so one of the big things that exercise does is it actually drives nutrients and it drives the ability to take up those nutrients and use them to build and turn over the proteins within your body.
0: Yeah, so we've touched upon, and you mentioned collagen, ligaments, tendons as an area of interest that you've been looking at. Obviously, ACL injuries, these are one of the most common sports injuries Mm -hmm. in in, in America and the world. curious to hear about your work there and other practical tips that has come out of your work that folks can get some tips or lessons from.
1: It's a really interesting area because probably even ten years ago, people just thought it was a completely inert tissue. That your tendons were these bands on the end of your muscle, and they didn't really do anything. Your ligaments were just sitting there, and the only time anybody thought about them was when they broke. Yeah. And so what we've really been noticing and learning is that they're. Completely dynamic tissues. And the way that we got into this is that when I was working with my postdoctoral mentor, Bob Dennis, who's that really smart guy I talked about earlier, we were engineering these muscles. So we were engineering little muscles. And this was, you know, part of a a project for the military where we were trying to basically you could control the muscle and the muscle would be a motor Hmm. and that you could use that motor to do whatever, so it could last forever because it could self-regenerate. It had all these capacities that a normal muscle does. But what we do is every time we put it onto a, a machine it would pull off because the interface between the muscle and the machine was always the weak spot. Right. And so we had to figure out how the body did that. So we yeah. had to understand what a tendon was and how the tendon was working. And so what we had learned in that early work that I did with Ellen Aruda at the University of Michigan is that our tendons are these really cool tissues that aren't just an inert band. They actually, as you go along them towards the bone, they become stiffer. As you go along them towards the muscle, they become less stiff. And so that's perfect for what its role is. It's to connect two tissues that are very different in their mechanics. And so then we started trying to engineer these tendons and ligaments. We engineered with one of the PhD students, Sarah Calvey. She engineered the first tendon. And then we've since done some really cool work where I have a colleague, Liam Grover in the UK, who's at Birmingham. And he's six foot 11, I think. So he's this huge guy. I met him at a conference just because, oh my God, who the <laughs> hell is that over there? Because he's huge, yeah. but he's a bone engineer. And so that's kind of fitting for somebody who had to build a lot of bone that he makes bone. So what we did is combine his technology for making these little bones with our engineer tendon. Now we engineer a ligament, which is kind of bone, ligament, bone. And when we were starting to play with these things, what we would notice is that, you know, we could manipulate things and they would grow bigger and stronger. They would get more collagen. They'd be really dynamic. And one of the first things we did, because we have all these engineers, is let's build some little exercise equipment. And sure enough, we could build these little machines that could pull them. And they could stretch them, and you could then figure out, okay, what's the best type of exercise for our tendons and ligaments? Hmm. And so when we started doing this work, we, we thought coming from the muscle field that you have to do a lot of work. The early work that had come out of Copenhagen, out of Michael Kerr's lab, most of the studies were on these 37-kilometer runs, and then they'd look at how much collagen synthesis there would be in the patellar tendon or the Achilles tendon. So we thought it was going to take a lot. And we started doing these experiments, and we dial everything back. And in the end, it took less than 10 minutes in order to maximally activate the cells within these tendons or ligaments.
0: Interesting.
1: And so we thought that was insane. And then we went to the literature, and sure enough, if you look, bones are basically tend uh, their ligaments that have been mineralized so it wasn't too surprising then when we found the bone literature showed the same thing
0: ten minutes it took load. as
1: little as 40 loads to maximally activate or maximally increase bone collagen and bone mineralization so you get this maximal effect with 40 loads and then it if you were to do a 40 loads then you ask how long do you have to wait before you do it again and it took between six and eight hours and when we did it with our engineered ligaments it was exactly the same. So you would maximally activate it in about ten minutes, and then we'd wait. We waited all kinds of different times, but it seemed like we'd get back maximal activation again after six hours. And then so we did this. forty
0: little like twitches yeah. at maximal load, and you're yeah. done. And wait exactly. six eight hours, and that's optimal.
1: Yeah. So there's there's literature in humans in bone field where they would do ten jumps three times a week, jump as high as you can ten times in a day just at this period of time, right. and you do that three times a week, and then they looked at bone mineralization, the bone accretion rate, and the bone accretion rate increased. So it takes a very small amount for these connective tissues. When we did the final study in the ligaments where we'd pull them for 10 minutes and we'd let them rest for six hours, we'd pull them for 10 minutes, and we did that 10-minute continu- that intermittent stress, or we'd stretch them continuously for 24 hours a day, again, because these are little machines right. that we can do this with, We found that you actually got more collagen synthesis and a stronger tissue when you did just the 40 minutes a day rather than you did 24 hours a day. And so that was the first time that we started thinking about, okay, there's exercise that's going to be specific for our connective tissues. And there's exercise that is going to be more important for our hearts and our our skeletal muscle.
0: Right.
1: And then we started asking about nutrition because the medias that we get— are not unlike some sort of a soup that we feed these constructs, these ligaments. And what we found is that when we added more proline to the constructs, we actually see more collagen Hmm. in them and they'd be stronger. And it makes sense because a tendon is made up of collagen and collagen is a repeating sequence of glycine, any amino acid, and then proline. And so if you have more proline or if you have more glycine, you should be able to synthesize more collagen. Right. And so that was what we had discovered in our ligaments is that's exactly what we found. There's some work out of Brazil that says if you have tendinopathy and you feed them really high amounts, rats, really high amounts of glycine, something that's not really possible in a human, that amount of glycine, but you can actually improve collagen synthesis and repair some of the tendons. Right. So what I did is I just did simple, here's what you do. You Google, what are foods rich in proline? And up comes gelatin. So I was like, okay, well, so this then, and I tried to talk for, I think it was three or four years. I tried to talk people into doing this because we'd found this in our engineered ligaments. We didn't do human work at the time. And so somebody's got to do the study where you just feed people gelatin and see whether you increase collagen synthesis. And after three or four years when we couldn't get anybody to do it, we finally did it with Greg Shaw at the Australian Institute of Sport. It's this really nice paper in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, but it's kind of limited in scope. Not too many people, and there were only a couple of treatments, but that's because it was Greg and I paying for it out of our own pockets. So we couldn't afford to do much. But what we did is we we fed people either a placebo, 5 or 15 grams of gelatin, and we measured how much the amino acids increased in your blood after this. And we had done this and we looked over time and all of the amino acids that are high in collagen, like glycine and proline, hydroxyproline, hydroxylysine, they go way up at about an hour after after you drink the collagen or the gelatin. Right. And then so what we had them do is an hour after we had them drink the gelatin, we had them jump rope for six minutes because we had shown that these short bouts are enough. And sure enough, when we do that, we saw this nice increase in collagen synthesis. And when we looked at the placebo or the five gram group, there wasn't a bigger increase with five grams, but when we did 10, 15 grams of gelatin, we actually doubled collagen synthesis. And what was a result.
0: biomarker for collagen synthesis? So we
1: use this marker, which is P1NP, which is the N-terminal peptide of collagen one. Okay. So it's the collagen, it's the pro-collagen one N-terminal peptide. And so when you make collagen, you have to cut off the two ends, the C and the N-terminal, in order for it to go into the triple helix to make the actual collagen. And so we use that as a marker. And because we're taking it from the blood, because there's so much bone in the body it's really when we take it from the blood the P1MP is mostly coming from bone and so what we had done is we had seen that bone collagen synthesis could be increased with exercise and nutrition together if you do the nutrition as a gelatin right and the other thing that we did is we took blood at an hour and we put it down to our engineered ligaments and we grew it either from before they took the drink or an hour after they took the drink and what we saw is that an hour after the drink there was a dose dependent increase in collagen in the engineered ligaments so there's something in your blood that we can isolate your blood just take the serum from that which has the amino acids right. it has all these other things and when we add that to our engineered ligaments it makes them stronger and gives them more collagen and
0: this is not even exercising these little yeah, no, it something it's just giving some, them the something. food okay. yeah
1: so if we can deliver it to them it's a positive uh, effect yeah. And so what we think we're doing is the exercise was delivering it to where we were trying to get it. And then the nutrition was giving us a beneficial effect. And so that was the first human study on that. And didn't you
0: add vitamin C to that? Because I think that's something that probably most people don't realize. I think most people have seen gelatin or collagen supplements, but there's no vitamin C in that. Right. And it sounds like
1: you. So that becomes important, especially for our study design. We use people who are overnight fasted, yeah. And because our bodies don't produce vitamin C, we actually need it from a dietary source. Okay, if we don't have it, we get scurvy, and that's you know uh, that was actually the first nutrition stu- study ever was a, in the seventeen hundreds a study on, on scurvy. <laughs> but because overnight you consume most of the vitamin C within your body, if you don't provide vitamin C when you take the gelatin or the collagen, what you do is you don't see the increase in protein in collagen synthesis. And we know that from two studies that we've done. And we mistakenly did this because we were expecting this to have a positive effect. And we didn't see anything. And the only thing we can figure out is that we didn't have vitamin C. And the first study was when we took gelatin and hydrolyzed collagen and compared them. And they're about the same on average. The gelatin in our groups was a little bit better, but not statistically significant. And then what we did is we combined, so we did 15 grams of either gelatin, hydrolyzed collagen, or we combined seven and a half of each into a gummy. So we actually made it up. We boiled it. We made it up into a gelatin and people would eat the jello. And what we realized in hindsight is that when we boiled the juice, you killed the vitamin C. Ah. And so the result is that in the gummy, there was no increase in, in collagen synthesis. So it was exactly the same as the placebo. So the hydrolyzed collagen and the gelatin were increased over the placebo and, and, the, ge- and the gummy, so we at first thought that, oh, because it's hard, it's not being digested and absorbed." So we measured amino acid content in the blood is exactly same. the same. Yeah. So it, it had to have been that there was no vitamin C. So if you're just getting up in the morning and you're you're getting a coffee and you're just putting in collagen, which I've seen people say that this is the way to take collagen, you're not actually gonna have the positive effect on collagen synthesis. Unless you drink an orange juice with it. Or you take in some source. Yeah. But a lot of the people who are doing that are doing it as a kind of an intermittent fasting. So this is an early morning thing where they're not going to take in anything else. Yeah. And they're staying away from a juice like an orange juice because they're worried about the carbohydrate load. Yep. So what they're doing is they're actually ending up with something that's not going to be used for an what An expensive placebo. An expensive placebo. And that's so, a
0: very practical tip for folks listening.
1: So, you know, it's the easiest thing is just, you know, you can go to any place and get a powdered ascorbic acid. You just put a little tiny bit and you can make your gummy into a sour gummy and you can then eat it that way and it's perfectly good that way. Yeah, But you do want to make sure that you actually keep your vitamin C in the fridge because it is very sensitive to temperature changes. So if you have it, you know, just sitting out and it's in a sunlit area, you can actually lose vitamin C activity in your supplement very yeah. quickly. And again, you don't need much. So when we're talking about supplement, all of our studies have only used 50 milligrams so right. far. So that's right at the daily recommended allowance really? so it's not like so that's an orange essentially yeah um so some of the pro athletes that we do it with what they do is they take an orange juice and they add the collagen or gelatin to that and they make either a slurry if it's the gelatin or they it dissolves if it's the hydrolyzed collagen and they just drink that
0: yeah You've probably heard of GoCubes, our Chewable Coffee Gummies. GoCubes were featured on Shark Tank and was one of HVMN's first breakout products that helped put us on the map in 2016. They're a yummy, on-the-go, jitter-free energy boost. This is the last run of GoCubes we're going to make. But the sweet news for you is that until April 19th, which is this Friday, we are offering 50% off on GoCubes. That's right, you can get more than a month's worth of chubal coffee for around 20 bucks. Order as many as you like, GoCubes must go. Visit www.hvmn.com pod to activate this time sensitive offer. Act fast as we will be running out of stock very quickly. You can also find the link in the show notes. I think a lot of your work actually just highlighted for us when people wanted a collagen product from us. We made sure to have the vitamin C in there, and it's like Keith, you basically flagged that for us. You know, so appreciate the good work there, just educating the world that you know just eating a Jello with itself is not going to do it. You need to have the right you know, substrates and coenzymes around it,
1: and especially if you're going to take it as part of a bigger program where you're trying to decrease other macronutrients. If you're trying to decrease some sugars and you're not having juices. That's one of the big sources of vitamin C. So you have to think about it a little bit more as if you're going to be doing it in a very regimented diet. Yeah. I want
0: to move on to exercise memetics. I think people have probably read in the news about PPAR-Delta as this very interesting uh, target. And there's been, I would say, fairly splashy magazine articles about how these PPAR-Delta agonists are going to be completely replaced exercise and then they just gave a lot of people cancer and it really failed. I know you've been looking and exploring the space. Curious to hear your thoughts on this category. And what do you think is exciting in this space?
1: So PPAR, especially for muscle, PPAR-Delta was seen as this really great thing. Because Ron Evans had developed these animals that overexpress PPAR-Delta and they could run animals, forever. Right? Yeah. They, they just run forever. Yeah. And so the idea then was that, okay, if we just activate PPAR, we can get the same response as exercise. We'll get this endurance response. And it's actually one of the interesting things about a ketogenic diet. And this is one of the reasons why we're interested in some of the things we're interested in right now. is because my collaborator, Professor Gino, Gino Cortopassi at UC Davis, when we were doing the ketogenic diet studies, he was doing whole genome analysis to see what kind of genetic changes were happening in the body. And the thing that came up as the number one upregulated pathway was PPAR delta or PPAR. PPAR activity goes way up. And the reason it goes up is because these transcription factors are fatty acid-activated transcription factors. So we know that they're activated by fatty acids. If you have a ketogenic diet and you have a richer fatty acid pool, you're going to increase PPARs. It makes sense because the PPARs, one of the main things that they do, they upregulate pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase, which then phosphorylates PDH and means that carbohydrate can't get into the TCA cycle so that more fat can be used as a fuel. It does all kinds of other things, increasing fatty acid oxidation enzymes and all of these other really great things. But that's one of the key things that it does is shifts metabolism towards fatty acid use. We got interested in it when I had my first laboratory in Scotland because... One of the things that I had heard about us these little sandpipers that had changed their migratory pattern so that they ended up in the Bay of Fundy every year before they did this huge like 3,000, 5,000 mile flight. Mm. And the interesting thing about the Bay of Fundy is that they had these little crustaceans that were the richest source of omega-3 fatty acids that could potentially activate PPARs. And so evolutionarily, they had figured out that these things would increase their fatty acid oxidation capacity and increase their exercise capacity. So that if they flew there and they took in this nutrient-dense source of omega-3 fatty acids, that they then had this huge mitochondrial effect without exercising extensively. And it's because for
0: fitness and they survive then it's Exactly.
1: Selected. So they had changed their whole migratory pattern. And so we had come up with this idea that if we could figure out a way that we could use natural products to activate PPAR. And be well below some of the drugs that people use that cause the brain cancer issues that were problematic. That we could actually do something that would increase the ability to use fat as a fuel, increase the the effects of exercise, or potentially mimic exercise's ability to shift that. So we had started doing that. I had a postdoc Kurt Watson who was really good. I I I all. I immediately wanted to hire him because he was Dr. Watson and I thought that was the greatest thing is being a huge Sherlock Holmes fan <laughs> yeah. that, that that's, that's the he greatest name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, that would be wonderful. And he came up with this really cool system where we could use muscle cells and we could actually go in and he could put a few things into the muscle cells and they, they could give us a readout as to whether we've activated PPAR Delta. And it was specific to PPAR Delta because we would try the other PPARs and it would give us no activity. Mm. So it was a really cool assay that Then we went in and and we screened hundreds and hundreds of natural products. And then we found a bunch of them that activated this in muscle. And then what we did is use the same engineering techniques that we've used in the past, where what we do is we, in a single experiment, we add a little bit of each one into all of the different, but in different amounts. So what you do is in one experiment, you say, what's the optimal concentration and combination of all of these different potential Activators. And so we had come up with three of these things that when you did all of these engineering experiments, the that was the optimal combination and concentration. And so there's just a couple of things that are GRASS certified. They're impossible to pronounce, so I won't even bother. <laughs> but one of them is gamma acid, which right. is a normal PPAR delta ag- agonist. And so the other two work together with it, and we got something on the order of a, of a five to six fold increase in PPAR activity, where the drugs were giving us 16 to 20 fold. Right. So it was right in this really nice sweet spot. And so now what we're doing is we're going in to see whether we can use that as a way to mimic the exercise. For a lot of the people who are listening and watching this, they're doing something similar if they're doing a ketogenic diet. Mm. Cuz one of the things that we think is really positive about the ketogenic diet is that it's activating the PPARs. And we think that that's really positive just like we had talked earlier about mTOR being something that we want to keep down at certain times and then activate and have that dynamic range. We think that what one of the things that's important for maintaining longevity is this possibility of shifting towards fatty acid metabolism. Right. This ability to shift towards fatty acid and maintain mitochondrial function. And some of the work that we haven't published from our long ketogenic diet study, we've looked at the muscle. And in the old animals on a ketogenic diet, they have more muscle. They've maintained their muscle. It's not that they've grown their muscle. It's just that they haven't lost it as much as the control animals. And the, they have Better endurance. Their endurance is the same as when they were young, even though they haven't exercised. Right. And so there's different things in there that seem to really have a exercise mimetic effect. They're not going to do everything that the exercise does, but they're going to have some of the components. And then to do those types of things together with a little bit of exercise probably you think it'll has. Synergize? A, it, we think it'll it'll synergize.
0: And you think it'll synergize on top of keto uh, keto diet, exercise,
1: and your PPAR agonists. I don't know whether you... you triple up the benefits. I don't know whether it's going to be an additive effect like that. Sure. Um, It could be that the the exercise in the keto is potentially something that's enough to get the PPAR-Delta activity. Oh, so you're saying maxing it out or something? Potentially. But we don't know. One of the things that we had seen is one of the the ways that is really big in training is this low glycogen training. Mm -hmm. And specifically, you train twice in a day or you train in the evening and you sleep in a low glycogen situation and get up in the morning. And you do a second exercise bout in a glycogen depleted state. And one of the things that we had seen early on with that, when we had been doing some work with Oscar Yukindrup and John Hawley, is that when we did this in a rat model, the one thing that we saw was that when you did exercise in a glycogen depleted state, the biggest effect that we saw was this huge increase in PPAR-delta activity. So we saw this really big increase in PPAR-delta binding to its transcriptional targets. Because the only thing you have is fat. So like you've really got to be fat oxidating really, really efficiently, so it makes sense. And there's a huge metabolic demand, and the only thing you've got is fatty acids. So now that together is giving you this big signal that the exercise alone didn't give you. So we think that some of it is to do that. Now, the, the low glycogen training is designed to specifically overcome one aspect of the whole fat adaptation, and that's this idea that when you fat adapt completely, what you're doing is you're actually decreasing the ability to use carbohydrate. Right. And so, what you do by this intermittent low glycogen training, you get the PPAR delta activation, but you don't get it to the extent that it overrides the ability to use carbohydrate. Right? Because we talked about earlier, PPAR delta increases PDK1, which blocks PDH. Yeah. And Trent Stellenworth had beautifully shown that when you try and do a sprint and actually Tim Noakes was the first one to show is that your ability to do distance when you were fat adapted was maintained and you right. could go hard but you couldn't do the sprints and so he had done this long distance cycling race and it had I think it was eight sprints in it and so Tim Noakes had shown that the the fat adapted group did fine on the distance but they didn't do as well on the sprints. Right. And Trent Stellenworth had shown that during his PhD that when you do the fat adaptation and you try and sprint on the bike, you can't sprint as much. And when they took biopsies, what they saw was that PDH activity had gone down. Yep. So you couldn't get glucose in. And so it's this... It's um, a trade-off. Exactly. Yeah. But that's why doing it intermittently through the low glycogen training is... You still can use carbohydrate, but now you've had the ability to have a transient increase in PPAR activity. Right. And so that's why when you do the sleep low studies, John Holly's done these studies, you can see this increase in performance based on you're still able to use carbohydrate, you're still able to sprint, but you had a better adaptation. For fat Do, oxidation. For fat ups, yeah, I, uh, I oxidation. Yeah, I think that's
0: another subtle point that I don't think most people talk about. I think we talked a lot about the benefits of a ketogenic diet, but you're also making a trade-off for performance. And I think that's something that we've been focused more about. There's an orthogonal dimension between longevity and then performance. Sometimes they overlap. <laughs> But many times, I think in this particular case, they're not necessarily overlapping or they're just opposite goals.
1: Right. And I think the best example for me was a few years ago, LeBron James. And this is one I use with my students. LeBron James, everybody's like, oh, my God, he's lost a step. He's looking, you know, he's ripped, but he's slow. And we don't know what's going on. And that summary had gone on a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. And he had really lost weight and he looked great. But he, the nice thing about it, the NBA is this, you've got analytics there. Yeah. And you can actually see that his velocity went down. He wasn't running as fast. <laughs> and it, the distance he could cover fast went way down. Right. He had this two-week period where he took a break from basketball. He redid his diet. He came back and everybody was like, I don't know what he did in those two weeks. But he's, he's he moving so much some better. He, <laughs> he just ate some carbs. And so he was back. And so now he's got a little bit of the adaptation. So he's lost some weight. Yeah. Now he can use carbohydrate again because he's gone off the complete low-carbohydrate situation. And so now he's got a really good combination of the two worlds yep. where he's, he's at a better weight to be able to perform. Now he can use carbohydrates so he can sprint better. And so his performance went way up. Yeah. And everybody's like, oh, my God, I don't know. That's the classic example of what kind of things can happen. Yeah. You I mean, don't necessarily get the big shoot back up in performance unless you've had something like the body weight loss. Right. So if you've lost a lot of fat mass when you've been doing it, and then you can get back and give yourself enough time to get back so you can use carbohydrates as a fuel, now you've really got this benefit of having lost the weight, you can still use the fuel, and you've had this adaptation where your mitochondria work better.
0: I think some of the more keto advocates would say, well, if you do six months of adaptation or 12 months of adaptation, you can get back up to your peak sprint performance. I haven't seen data on that. I mean, do you think that's a little bit of a stretch on pushing keto too aggressively? I think it's a stretch.
1: I do. I know like the supernova studies that Louise Burke has been doing. They've yeah. been beautiful studies. They've, they haven't they have gone six months or a year. Right. It it seems like no matter how long the studies go, it's the, the people who are like really passionate about it say, oh, you didn't go long enough. Right. Well, you're in ketosis for a long period of time. We can produce ketosis in a matter of minutes just by doing the right nutritional things. You can produce ketosis with your product without having any change in diet. And so you can do those things. You can see a lot of the positive effects. And some of the studies we've been doing in mice now, we have moved to these intermittent ketogenic diets. So it's one or two days on a ketogenic diet, and then a few days, and then a week off. And so when we had published our cell metabolism paper, there was another paper from people at UCSF who had done the intermittent ketogenic diet, and they saw the same effect longevity so it's not that you have to fat adapt it's not that you have to become fully adapted to the keto diet in order to have the beneficial effects on longevity and these other things so i'm not understanding really how that's going to be important for getting back the performance and i don't see it Coming back. I mean, it seems like you plateau out your fat
0: oxidation ability pretty quickly. And then at a certain point, you just need glucose for anaerobic activity.
1: Well, you just need glucose to go fast. Yeah. Because what limits how fast we go is how quickly we can produce energy. Right. And so it takes more time to produce energy using fatty acids. Yeah. It's just, it is a thermogenic you know, reality. Yeah. So it takes more time. So you have to go down a little bit slower so that you have enough time to produce the energy. Yeah. And so if you're completely fat adapted and you're blocking glucose entry into the, into TCA cycle, you have to go a little bit slower in order to allow that.
0: Yeah, do you think the paradigm might shift with things like our ketone ester or some of your PPAR delta agonists? And I think I would still agree with you that for optimal, optimal performance, even if you have a ketone ester, you probably want to preload with carbohydrates as well to maximize all possible fuels. And I think that's what we recommend. It's like, hey get as much of every single possible substrate in there.
1: so the nice things about the keto esters is that they can get into the the muscle really easily, and they can get into the mitochondria really easily. So as soon as you put in a keto ester or a ketone, what you see is you see this huge increase in acetyl-CoA. And so it's getting in the mitochondria really quickly. So you, what you're doing is you're prov- you're providing more sources of acetyl-CoA. Right. And that has the potential to then if acetyl-CoA is then driving TCA and how quickly you can produce energy. Right. If you can do two things at once and you can get two acetyl-CoA from two different sources, that's entirely different than if Just you're fat, fat oxidation. Or if you just got carbohydrate, because right. then you've got acetyl CoA only from one. Right. And so if that's driving the rate at which you can produce energy, and the limit is how much you can get in at that level, then potentially you're going to have a beneficial effect. And that's what the cell paper really showed. Yeah. Was that with the ketoester, you saw this increase in performance. Right. There was just it wasn't that you were blocking carbohydrate performance or oxidation. You just were adding a little bit of another type of energy that could then produce energy faster right, right. and you go faster. Yeah. And so that's that's really attractive about this. Yeah. Because, you know, scientifically, the biggest thing that we see, if we add in a ketone, the number one thing that we see almost immediately is an increase in acetylated proteins. And that's just because there's more acetyl-CoA. Hmm. And so we think that it's really quickly broken down to that acetyl-CoA, so you can either acetylate proteins or you can have these other effects. Like driving right m- metabolism. Right. We think it's important as well because you're acetylating proteins and that can stabilize some. One of the proteins you acetylate is that's regulated by acetylation is PG-21-alpha, which is important in mitochondrial biogenesis. So we think that that's one of the reasons that you get more mitochondria on the ketogenic diet is because Mm. you've got this increase in PG-21-alpha activity. We also think that there's other targets that are acetylated and that regulates, say, growth. So one of the reasons that we're anti- Cancer in our animal study, when we had this ketogenic diet, was some of the proteins that regulate growth in a general form. They become acetylated, they become stabilized, and they they accumulate to a greater degree. Right. So we think that the ability to get in and convert it into acetyl CoA quickly is one of the great positive effects of the ketone. Yeah. And so if you can do that without without sacrificing glucose entry into the cycle, now you've got can the you get possibility the of both worlds potentially. Yeah. yeah. And one thing that I think is interesting that is just sort of, I
0: don't think it's necessarily resolved is that people will talk about the benefits of ketones or or, or ketosis in general. I think it's kind of conflated. How much of the benefit do you think is from going on a ketogenic diet with a dietary restriction of carbohydrate? How much do you think is because of the signaling effect of beta-hydroxybutyrate or a ketone body itself. I mean, my stance on this is like it's a bit of both. There's some Venn diagram right. of overlap and some that are distinct. Right. Curious to hear you unpack some of the nuances there. Because I know that you know, HDAC inhibition is probably based on beta-hydroxybutyrate itself, which is interesting for a potential Potentially. longevity.
1: But, but also it's also the, modulated, it's modulated by acetylation.
0: Right. So the, so that that's sort of like the nuance. And I think there's more work to be done.
1: So the best thing that we have so far is our study, our cell metabolism study, where we did the low carbohydrate, high fat, but we kept protein high. So ketone levels were low mm-hmm. versus the one where we dropped the protein a little bit and we got the higher ketone levels. Yeah. Yes, we decreased protein and protein is associated with longevity as well. But we decreased protein to only 10%. So that's still above their recommended daily allowance for a a mouse. So they still had enough protein to do everything. So they weren't in a protein deficient sense. What you see there is the the low carbohydrate, high fat diet. You have a 6% increase in longevity. The ketones seem to be driving an extra doubling of it. If we look at things like acetylation, the low carbohydrate diet animals had no change in acetylation. It was only the ketogenic diet that saw the big shift in acetylation. So some things are distinct from the low carbohydrate because the low carbohydrate was zero carbohydrate. So it was no carbohydrate in both, but in one you had protein or in the other you didn't so that you can drive ketogenesis because in the mice you need to have lower protein to drive ketogenesis. So we think that there are very specific things that are driven by the ketone and there's different things that are modulated by the carbohydrate level. And so, for us, it's really about trying to understand, you know, is that just because of the ketone? And so, one of the things that we've been looking at is, is actually looking at, at Kieran Clark and, and potentially working with her to say, okay, if we just give a keto ester, do we see all of the same benefits? And in and, and some of the initial stuff, we seem to think that we can if it's the right thing because the keto salts are problematic. There are all kinds of different delivery possibilities, but at least for the ones that we've seen, it seems like there's something specific about the ketone. Right. And we don't know whether it's binding to a receptor, an activating G coupled receptor, which is something that's been proposed, or whether it's just coming in, driving acetylation, driving this change in acetyl-CoA, which then increases acetylation rates. And if you've got enzymes like histone deacetylase, if you've shifted everything towards acetylation... Is that enzyme then functionally inhibited because you're just driving acetylation? Right, and that's one of the things that we've proposed I to see, study. I see. Is that yes, we're getting acetylation of proteins like pgc and alpha, which has got this good effect. We're also driving the acetylation ratio towards proacetylation. So if you're a deacetylase, and now that's histone deacetylation inhibition, we'd shown that that increases mitochondrial mass. That was stuff that we'd done with Sean McGee in in Australia. He had done a postdoc with me in, in Scotland, and we had started that. And then he had gone to his own lab and continued. But when you use something that blocks histone deacetylase, you get an increase in mitochondrial mass. You get an increase in fat and carbohydrate utilization. So you get all of these interesting... So is the ketone giving you acetyl-CoA, driving acetylation towards that side, away from the deacetylase, and it's functionally inhibited the deacetylase? You know, because that's the way some of these things work. So the Chloris had discovered that they were going to measure phosphorylation. And what they did is they took this glycerol phosphate... And they added it into their buffers when they were homogenizing up tissue. And when they did that, now they could see phosphorylation. But without those buffers, they couldn't see it. And all it did was give a ton of phosphate. So if there's lots of phosphate, the, the enzymes that take the phosphate off are inhibited because there's so much phosphate that they bind to that instead of binding to their target. Right. So is that what's happening with a ketone? It's coming into the mitochondria. You get all these acetylations. And now you've driven everything away or you've produced so much acetyl-CoA that you're now functionally inhibiting HDACs.
0: Right. See, I think that's like where it's exciting to see that the science is still just at the cutting edge. Exactly. I mean, hopefully we can... The the group of folks, whether at Oxford or the Karen Clark, or we can help make that happen. I I think that would be very fascinating to understand what is the dominating factor. I presume a little bit of both, but it would be interesting to understand what is the dominating factor. Whether it's the ketone itself or the process of ketogenesis.
1: Exactly. But we know that there's enough from some of the ketoester stuff that says there's functional things happening when you're fully on a regular diet when you take a keto ester. Yeah. So, so that's telling us that ketone is doing something. hundred percent.
0: What's on your deck for 2019? I mean, I think that, you know, the broad areas of that we covered, I think are, are, are super fascinating to specifically our audience, but, you know, on the horizon, obviously potential work with ketones, est, you know, ketone esters and all of that. But you know, on your docket, what do you think is most exciting in
1: 2019, 2020? It's an interesting day for me today because I'm sitting nervously because our grant at NIH is right now being decided whether it's (laughs) going to get funded. So, we'll find out today whether our ketogenic diet and longevity studies are are going to be funded as as of today. So, we're hoping that that goes through and then we've got this big project that we're going to move through on really trying to understand how the ketogenic diet affects the neuronal component. And what we're thinking is it's coming from muscle. So there's Mm. a signal that's coming from muscle that's maintaining the brain function. And we know that individuals who are active and have more muscular activity have better brain function. So so what we're trying to do is we're trying to see whether the ketogenic diet is having these direct effects on the muscle. And whether ah. if we block what happens at the muscle, do we stop the positive effects of the ketogenic diet in the brain? That's and interesting. Then can we get in and mimic it?
0: Because I would say that I think you know, some of our conversations with folks that have been looking at the connection with ketogenic diet with you condi- you know you know conditions like Alzheimer's would go for more of the direct link where… Mm-hmm. You might have insulin resistance or glucose uptake dysfunction in your neurons. Can ketone bodies be this alternate fuel source that rescues brain function? But you're suggesting that maybe that's a component, but also this component from the muscle, which I haven't heard before.
1: We think that there is a component that's coming from muscle. Interesting. And and, and again, the, the, the muscle functionality and and this ability to shift it towards fatty acid utilization is changing metabolism within the muscle. And that's giving us an increase in the ability to have the brain function properly. We've got really interesting preliminary data that would suggest that that's a possibility. So that's a cool thing that we're looking at. We're doing a lot of things with injury and recovery right now, because one of the things that happens is you're, for years we've been promoting, you know, activity is great. And then you get to a point where you can't do activity anymore, because your body. People tell me that their body's breaking down, and and how their body is breaking down, and and so what can we do to maximize rec- recovery from tendinopathy? So I have a I have a student now who's developing um, who's who's got a, a model of tendinopathy where we put a a little hole into the patellar tendon and then what she's going to do is she's going to use some of these same engineering techniques to try and figure out what's the optimal exercise program for returning that tendon to fully functioning proper tendon because even though muscle strains sprains and, in- and injuries are the number one thing that causes time away from work and it costs billions of dollars every year we only have this idea that well you should stay I sit, off it maybe. for a while yeah, ice yeah. it yeah There's not really anything. There's this idea that if you do these slow lengthening contractions and you do them all the time, that it's it's really difficult to do. And we had a case study published with one of the professional basketball teams we work with where we had an individual who had a central core patellar tendinopathy. And you could see it on the MRI. There's a hole in his patellar tendon. And we put him on a specific exercise plan with a little bit of nutrition. And then 12 months later, the hole is gone. 18 months later, we gave the the MRI to an independent orthopedic surgeon who was telling us about things that were going on in the knee in other places, but the patellar tendon was completely normal. And so that's really strange because everybody had always said you got to treat the donut so the healthy part of the tendon not the hole because they they didn't think you could actually fix the the hole. hole interesting um so so because we were able to do that in the human now we want to know whether we can reproduce that completely in the in the animal and then understand what the genetic profile is so that we can then say and this is one of the cool things you can do is i can go in and give the best optimal exercise program to that patellar tendon, take out the area of interest and identify the genes that are activated. Hmm. And then I can go to this connectivity map where it's got 1,300 natural products. And I can see whether the genetic signature that I have from my exercise matches with with any of these natural products that people have already characterized. And now you already have things that, oh, well, that should help as well. So now can we target that? And so we'll use the exercise together with that because they're both having the same signature. So things like that are going to be things that are, I think are really cool. We've got all kinds of other things happening with the idea of inflammatory tendencies. Sounds like a like really cool infrastructure and
0: pipeline, right? Yeah. So you have like this connectivity map, you have, you know, targets, exactly. you together. To exactly. You know, solutions, potential
1: solutions with problems. Exactly. And, and so it's really cool because what we can do is we can manipulate things on a genetic level. We've then got these 3D engineered models where we can mechanically test to see how strong we've gotten something. We can then go into an animal model and then we can go up to the human. Yeah. And so we've got this one right now that we're working on because women rupture their ACLs four times more than men. Yeah. And we had shown that using our engineered ligaments, if we treat them with estrogen, their stiffness goes down even yeah. though their collagen's maintained. And so that's really cool because that means that what you're doing is you're m- affecting this protein that cross-links the collagen, yeah. and so it's not as strong. And so we then looked at natural products that could cross-link protein, and sure enough, we found a, a sulfur-based molecule. It's just MSM, which is, you know, in all a lot of the joint health medications, right. it's usually chondroitin, glucosamine, and MSM. If you just take the MSM, what it does is it cross-links proteins. When we put it in together with estrogen, we actually made the ligament stronger. Yeah. So whereas before you would get a weaker ligament, we actually made the ligaments stronger yeah. when they had the MSM together with the estrogen. So we've done that in the culture model. And now we're actually going to do a human study. We're starting the human study to see whether if we measure knee laxity in women, when, their estrus, when they have their luteal surge and the right. estrogens high, their knee can be one to three millimeters more lax. Right. So we're going to test that for a couple of months. Then we're going to do a randomized double-blinded study where they get MSM or placebo and see whether taking MSM for three months can now decrease the laxity that happens when estrogen rises. Yeah, which I
0: thought that was really interesting when you presented that data because that also might inform how coaches might use their players depending on where the, the woman is in her cycle, right? Like, exactly. That is definitely in- Important to understand in terms of training blocks and, and it's risk mandatory insurance.
1: because estrogen is really essential for muscle repair. Right. So if you have higher estrogen, your muscle repairs better. But it's also got the possibility of causing catastrophic injury to the yeah. tendon and ligament. Yeah. So what we just had a, a paper with one of my new students. She's she's this outstanding PhD student in Kechi, who's originally from Nigeria. She's 19 years old as a second year PhD Whoa. student. So she's Podgy. well smarter than me. But what <laughs> what she's done is. She's written a nice review of how you would put training together with estrogen. Thanks. So if you're an active woman, how would you want your estrogen levels to be? And then what we what we suggest is, it, look, if you're training for performance at a certain time of year, where you're a track athlete and you're going to go to the USAs or you're going to go to some competitive environment, what you would do is you would naturally be cycling during the year. And then what you would do is you would go on to a low progesterone Oral contraceptive mm. so that your estrogen is maintained when you get close to competition you don't want to do it for too long because then your muscle is going to not recover it as well, but you would do that for maybe a couple of months month to two months before competition, so that your performance level would be high, and then you would <laughs> cycle back out of that yeah so though it really talks about what we 're seeing for a lot of these things that a ketogenic diet might be great for a certain point of time, other things might be great at other times, but really just saying oh i'm going to do this." If I have a family history of cancer, ketogenic diet is going to be something. Or if I find out that I have a cancer, yeah, I'm on that. And I'm going to be taking that for sure. Yeah, And it's going to be as long as I can. If I've got other issues, I'm going to do certain. But what you want to do when you're not in that situation you want to vary things yeah. you know we talk about people have done this with altitude people have done this with other things with glucose so you know low glycogen training during the base phase and then as you get closer you're going to be replete with glycogen so your performance is best same thing seems to be true with estrogen Yeah, that you want to have it cycling normally when you're training but then as soon as you get into a competitive phase now you don't want that cycle anymore because catastrophic risk is too high yep. your performance is actually going to go down as well because the same thing that makes your knee lax at the acl makes your tendon less stiff and that decreases your performance yeah so it's one of the reasons why women produce less power than men mm. is that they can't transmit the forces quickly because they have less stiffness in their connective right. tissue and so knowing these things and trying to put it all together into a single system, you can come up with those types of things, but you really can't just say, oh, well, you're a runner. You, you should know, do you know, one size fits all thing. Yeah. You need to time it.
0: Yeah. I think that these ideas are finally transmitting or have been transmitted in the last few years where I think you time your nutrition, all the sort of cycles that you have. Exactly. Last couple questions here. One, obviously you've been looking at a lot of these lifestyle nutritional interventions, which ones have you adopted personally if you do that sort of thing? Uh, you know, what has passed your personal bar of confidence? And then two, it seems like there's more and more serious inquiry, at least from the, I would say, the consumer side around anti-aging longevity. We were hinting about what the ketogenic studies. Do you think that that is also happening within the academic community or is it just sort of, same old, we're just making progress day, year by year, or is there sort of an inflection point where like there's actually much more funding opportunities for that space?
1: We'll start with the second one first. So as far as when we look at these types of interventions and we think about what the future is and whether there's interest in the academic sense. There's definitely interest. Run Felipe, who runs the division of aging biology at NIH, he says that most diseases that you see are actually aging diseases. Because what we've done is we've treated heart disease well. So now people live longer because it used to kill one in two very young, a lot of them very young. So now what we're seeing is a lot of these diseases we're seeing are diseases that are really ages. It's, It's a product of age. And so there's a huge interest academically to understand what's going on and how aging is associated with all these other factors to then say, this is the outcome that you get. This is how long you're going to live because you have this genetics, you have this diet, you have this... Habitual activity, and this is where you end up. Because right. we always see these people who say, oh, yeah, you know, the interviews with the guy who turns 100. Oh, yeah, my secret is a, you know, a cigar every day and drink alcohol. <laughs> drink a whiskey. And, yeah. and doing all these things. Yeah. And you're just like, how did that happen? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, if you interviewed everybody, that would be the outlier. But that's the one that that we hear about. Right. So there's this huge interest academically, and there's there is more funding coming into it. Uh, especially right now, over a lot of the neural, neurocognitive diseases, because again, Alzheimer's is, is really an aging issue. It's, it's not that. Alzheimer's didn't used to exist. It's just that nobody lived long enough to get it. <laughs> yeah. So you weren't worried about what would happen to you in your 70s yeah. because you were hoping to make 50. Right. Now that we're looking at, okay, 70, 80 is, is our mean lifespan. Now you're thinking, okay, all of these other things have to be taken care of. Yeah. And that's why more effort's being put into neurocognitive diseases because those are just showing up now and we still don't know much about them. Yeah. Um, as far as what things I've adopted myself. So I got into it because I l- loved activity. So I've always done the activity. The biggest thing That's for good. me A lot of is
0: academics, I feel like they're like, they're proud that they're not athletes and they're like sp- physiologists. It's kind of like, okay, I get it. Like you want to be distinct
1: from your study population. But I think I respect that, you know, you're in there. I, I just really feel like, look, the majority of the work that I do looks at muscle mass and strength and how it affects longevity and performance. I'm like... Why would I not lift weights? Yeah. And that's the key thing for me is to lift weights. Cause I also I also run as much as I can. Like, uh, you know, at least three times a week I'm out running. But I'm trying to lift twice a week. Just like because how long are
0: you running? I'm just curious in terms of like, so are you I'll doing put extended in, miles? I'll put in
1: 20 to 25 miles a week okay. kind of thing. Nice. So it's, it's, a, it's Solid. a little bit, yeah. but, you know, but the key thing for me is that I'll go in and lift weights. And that's the harder one for a lot of people. And they think it's hard because they think, oh, you got to go into the gym. It's going to take hours. But my workout takes 10 minutes. What is your workout? So I'll start with legs because legs are... So squatting or... No, I go into machines. And the reason I go in machines is because the literature is very clear. That if I lift weights to failure, my muscles will become bigger. And if I lift a heavy weight, I will become stronger. So if, if I'm in a machine... What it does is it supports my small musculature so that I'm not gonna have any likelihood of injury. Right. So I work with a lot of really elite athletes. I work with a lot of people who have to do modified squats because they've ruined their back, because they as they try and go up in weight, the small muscles aren't strong enough and that's where you give, that's where you fail. Yeah. So I can get to failure on a heavy weight without assistance by doing any machine. Yeah. So I'll go leg extension, curls, leg press, and that'll be it. And it's just one set to failure. Come in, hit it, and and just do the heaviest weight I can on that day for 8 to 12 repetitions. When I hit 12, I go up in weight. And so all that that does is I'm not going to grow huge. But what it does is it means I'm going to grow stronger. Yep. It's clear now that if you want to grow bigger, you need more volume. Yeah. If you want to grow stronger, one set to failure is all you need. Yep. So I'll go extension to curl, to press, and then I'll go a pressing exercise, a pulling exercise, you know, and then to a shoulder exercise, and then I'll go back and do one more pull and one more press. So the seven, eight seven, eight exercises, exercises to failure, done. To failure, you're in and out. 10 minutes, pretty aggressive at 15 minutes, I'll give it to 10 you. 10 to 15 minutes, yeah. <laughs> and that's similar to what we did at Michigan. Yeah, And these football players were huge. They were big, strong guys. Yeah, They didn't need to train for hours. Because if you go at a high intensity, you know, we hear about high intensity exercise. Everybody thinks it's intermittent endurance exercise. Right. The first high intensity exercise that we used to talk about was in the late 80s, high intensity exercise was this way of strength training, going one set to failure. Yeah. Work as hard as you can for one set. And then as soon as you're done, that's all you do for that. And then you go on to the next step. And so that was high intensity training in the 80s. Truly um, going to
0: failure as opposed truly going to like, to the, failure. like the, the kind of... Hit training is kind of like, go oh, kind of hard, but now you're not going to failure.
1: Well, so the endurance-based stuff is you're going hard, as hard as you can. Any intensity is not even going to be close to your one rep maximum. Right. So if you're cycling, yeah, you're pushing really hard on a, on a lot of resistance, yeah. but it's not close to your one rep maximum on a right. leg press. Right. So that's why the strength adaptation isn't as great when you do a high-intensity endurance-based. Yep. And now go to failure because the other thing that happens at failure is you move really slowly. Right. And when you move really slowly, that's the optimum thing for your tendons because tendons respond to speed. And so if I move really quickly, my tendon becomes stiffer and that's good for performance. But if I want to have better health on my tendon, what I want to do is I want to move it slowly. So as you go to failure, your movement starts going slower and slower. And the last one, you're barely moving it and that's actually optimal for your tendons because now you've got these shear forces that are breaking down some of the cross links and decreasing the stiffness there. And so that's really the biggest thing that I do that's a core of what I've looked at scientifically.
0: Help about nutrition?
1: Nutrition wise, what I'll tend to do is I try and not spread my calories over too. So it's time restricted feeding to some degree. So it's
0: a little bit like it's like a time like a intermittent fast, like a. It's not necessarily.
1: It, yeah, it's it's not it's not yeah it's like a sixteen eight type yeah. of thing. And the only reason that I'm doing that because it's that easy to do. I'm not super strict. So in the morning I'll have a latte. So I you know I don't necessarily yes, count. You know, yeah, the I count. Yeah, the milk is is Nominal. basically all I eat in the morning. And so the reason for that is, yeah, we're doing the ketogenic diet in these animal studies. But in order to do it, we can't do it as ad libitum fed. So we have to go in and every day we have to feed them. And this yeah. is what John Ramsey does better than anybody else in the world. He goes in and he weighs out and he feeds them. And what happens is because they don't have food for a while, they immediately go and they eat what they have. And so, yes, we're doing ketogenic diet, but we're also doing time-restricted feeding yeah. because they're only eating once or twice a day. Yeah. And so what we've got is we've got this situation where they're going the rest of the day without feeding. And so I can't tell you scientifically whether it's actually the ketogenic diet or whether it's the time it's the restricted feeding type thing, yeah. Yeah. And a bunch of people are really getting into the time restricted feeding as far as yep. the scientific validity of it because there's all these circadian clocks that are really important for yeah. Everything in the body, and some of them are dictated by the muscles. Some of them are dictated by other systems in the body, and so it could very well be that the ketogenic diet is beneficial. But it could actually be some of this time-restricted feeding yeah. component that's that's giving us some of the other effects.
0: Right. So you're not overly restrictive on carbohydrates. You're just kind no, of. I don't.
1: I don't. I don't pay attention to that. I have an 11-year-old daughter. It wouldn't necessarily <laughs> be something that I just want to. You know, the biggest thing that we do is we make most all of the food that we eat. Okay. so we'll make it from scratch yeah. and so so that's for us the biggest thing so we'll get real vegetables and, and cut them up and make put in all the effort yeah. it takes a lot more time but I think that that's the biggest thing because we don't have a lot of the processed food aspect of it and there's that's some sad. really nice data coming out now that it, no matter what you eat if it's processed more it's actually got a detrimental effect and so, so those are the types of things that I use but I'm not restrictive on anything I don't I don't focus on any specific macronutrient. Mind you, you know, if we get some of these diet, these grants funded <laughs> that tell us that on a, on a caloric-restricted diet, when we manipulate macronutrients, that there's a clear winner there, it would be hard to not go for that. Yeah,
0: yeah, let's be practical and science-driven. No, thanks so much for this conversation. Super, super interesting. I think it was a really it's well-nuanced conversation. Where do our folks follow your work? Are you on Twitter? Are you on social? Where do people keep in touch?
1: Yeah, so I am on Twitter. I got on very early on, so I got a really good handle. I'm just at Muscle Science. Okay. So just Muscle Science is where my Twitter feed is. And if people are interested in in our work, you know, the one thing that's really problematic for academic work is a lot of times you go to look at a paper because that's where it is and it's behind a paywall. Yeah. And what a lot of people don't understand is that we're allowed to give out those papers. And so if you email into a professor who's written a paper that you're interested in, they will email that back to you. And so, and it's one of the great things for most professors because we sit there and we do all this work and then we publish something and it sits there and you don't (laughs) have any idea whether anybody cares about it. I used to have a chair of a department that would tell me that he also wrote for Field and Stream because he was a big fisher. He was a big fisherman. So he he would tell me that, that more people would read one of his articles in Field and Stream than would read all of his scientific work combined. <laughs> and so if you want an article that's not accessible, just email. My one email is... You might
0: a lot of email requests. Yeah,
1: that's totally fine. And that goes for most professors, is that if you see something, the way to do it is you look at the last author. Usually there's a... Corresponding, says author says that a author. corresponding author or senior author. It's a corresponding author, and the email is usually given there. And if you just email that email, whether it's me, whether it's somebody else you'll get it usually within a few days. So that's the easiest way to stay up on kind of the really high-end literature. But yeah, social media, muscle science, keep up. Awesome, Keith, thanks so much. Yeah, no worries.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in this week, everyone. If you want to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit www.hvmn.com forward slash pot also, by writing a review on our iTunes page and sending a screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com, we'll hook you up with $15 worth of HVMN store credit. Our last shout out goes to our listener survey, which lets us know who you are better so we can continue making episodes that you find most valuable. So visit go.hvmn.com forward slash podcast survey. For that, it'll only take a few minutes and new submissions are eligible for an HVMN ketone giveaway, so it's well worth the time. Until next time, study
1: smart, train hard, and live well.